0: The Sanctuary by E. F. Benson Read by Richard Crowest Francis Elton was spending a fortnight's holiday one January in the Engadine when he received the telegram announcing the death of his uncle, Horace Elton, and his own succession to a very agreeable property – and the telegram added that the cremation of the remains was to take place that day, and it was therefore impossible for him to attend, and there was no reason for his hurrying home. In the solicitor's letter that reached him two days later, Mr Angus gave fuller details. The estate consisted of sound securities to the value of about £80,000, and there was as well Mr Elton's property, just outside the small country town of Wedderburn in Hampshire. This consisted of a charming house and garden and a small acreage of building land. Everything had been left to Francis, but the estate was saddled with a charge of five hundred pounds a year in favour of the Reverend Owen Barton. Francis knew very little of his uncle, who for a long time had been much of a recluse. Indeed, he had not seen him for nearly four years when he had spent three days with him at this house in Wedderburn. He had vague but slightly uneasy memories of those days and now on his journey home, as he lay in his berth in the rocking train, his brain, rummaging drowsily among its buried recollections, began to disinter these. There was nothing definite about them. They consisted of suggestions and sidelights and oblique impressions, things observed, so to speak, out of the corner of his eye, and never examined in direct focus. He had only been a boy at the time, having just left school— and it was in the summer holidays, hot, sultry weather of August, he remembered, that he had paid him this visit, before he went to a Crammer's in London to learn French and German. There was his uncle Horace, first of all, and of him he had vivid images— A grey-haired man of middle age, large and extremely stout, with a cushion of jowl overlapping his collar, but in spite of this obesity he was nimble and light in movement, and with a merry blue eye that was equally alert, and seemed constantly to be watching him. Then there were two women there, a mother and daughter, and, as he recalled them, their names occurred to him too. They were Mrs. Isabel Ray and Judith." Judith, he supposed, was a year or two older than himself, and on the first evening had taken him for a stroll in the garden after dinner. She had treated him at once as if they were old friends, had walked with her arm round his neck, had asked him many questions about his school and whether there was any girl he was keen on. All very friendly, but rather embarrassing. When they came in from the garden, certainly some questioning signal had passed between the mother and the girl— and Judith had shrugged her shoulders in reply. Then the mother had taken him in hand. She made him sit with her in the window-seat and talk to him about the crammers he was going to. He would have much more liberty, she supposed, than he had at school, and he looked the sort of boy who would make good use of it. She tried him in French and found he could speak it very decently, and told him that she had a book which she had just finished which she would lend him. It was by that exquisite stylist Huisman, and was called La Bas, She would not tell him what it was about. He must find out for himself. All the time those narrow grey eyes were fixed on him, and when she went to bed she took him up to her room to give him the book. Judith was there too. She had read it and laughed at the memory of it. Read it, darling Francis, she said, and then go to sleep immediately, and you will tell me tomorrow what you dreamed about, unless it would shock me. The vibrating rhythm of the train made Francis drowsy but his mind went on disinterring these fragments. There had been another man there, his uncle's secretary, a young fellow, perhaps twenty-five years old, clean-shaven and slim and with just the same gaiety about him as the rest. Everyone treated him with an odd sort of deference, hard to define but easy to perceive. He sat next Francis at dinner that night and kept filling his wine-glass for him whether he wanted it or not, and next morning he had come into his room in pyjamas, sat on his bed, looked at him with odd, questioning eyes, had asked him how he got on with the book, and then taken him to bathe in the swimming-pool behind the belt of trees at the bottom of the garden. No bathing-costume, he said, was necessary, and they raced up and down the pool and lay basking in the sun afterwards.' Then from the belt of trees emerged Judith and her mother, and Francis, much embarrassed, draped himself in a towel. How they all laughed at his delightful prudery! And what was the man's name? Why, of course, it was Owen Barton, the same who had been mentioned in Mr. Angus's letter as the Reverend Owen Barton. But why Reverend, Francis wondered, perhaps he had taken orders afterwards. All day they had flattered him for his good looks, and his swimming, and his lawn-tennis. He had never been made so much of, and all their eyes were on him, inviting and beckoning. In the afternoon his uncle had claimed him. He must come upstairs with him and see some of his treasures. He took him into his bedroom and opened a great wardrobe full of magnificent vestments." There were gold-embroidered copes, there were stoles and chasubles with panels of needlework enriched with pearls and jewelled gloves, and the use of them was to make glorious the priests who offered prayer and praise to the Lord of all things visible and invisible. Then he brought out a scarlet cassock of thick, shimmering silk, and a cotter of finest muslin trimmed around the neck and the lower hem with Irish lace of the sixteenth century. These were for the vesting of the boy who served at the mass, and Francis, at his uncle's bidding, stripped off his coat and arrayed himself, and took off his shoes and put on the noiseless scarlet slippers, which were called sanctuary shoes. Then Owen Barton entered, and Francis heard him whisper to his uncle, God, what a server, and then he put on one of those gorgeous copes and told him to kneel. The boy had been utterly bewildered. What were they playing at, he wondered? Was it charades of some sort? There was Barton, his face solemn and eager, raising his left hand as if in blessing. More astonishing was his uncle, licking his lips and swallowing in his throat as if his mouth watered. There was something below all this dressing up which meant nothing to him but had some hidden significance for the two men. It was uncomfortable, it disquieted him, and he wouldn't kneel but disrobed himself of the cotter and cassock. I don't know what it's about, he said, and again, as between Judith and her mother, he saw question and answer pass between them. Somehow his lack of interest had disappointed them, but he felt no interest at all, just a vague repulsion. The diversions of the day were renewed, there was more tennis and bathing, but they all seemed to have lost the edge of their keenness about him. That evening he was dressed rather earlier than the others, and was sitting in a deep window-seat of the drawing-room reading the book Mrs. Ray had lent him. He was not getting on with it. It was puzzling, and the French was difficult. He thought he would return it to her, saying that it was beyond him. Just then she and his uncle entered. They were talking together and did not perceive him. "'No, it's no use, Isabel,' said his uncle. "'He's got no curiosity, no leanings. It would only disgust him and put him off.' That's not the way to win souls. Owen thinks so, too. And he's too innocent. Why, when I was his age... Why, there's Francis. What's the boy reading? Ah, I see. What do you make of it? Francis closed the book. I give it up, he said. I can't get on with it. Mrs. Ray laughed. I agree, too, Horace, she said. But what a pity. Somehow Francis got the impression, he remembered, that they had been talking about him, but if so, what was it for which he had no leanings? He had gone to bed rather early that night, encouraged, he thought, to do so, leaving the rest at a game of bridge. He soon slept, but awoke, thinking he heard the sound of chanting. Then came three strokes of a bell, and a pause, and three more. He was too sleepy to care what it was about. Such, as the train rushed through the night, was the sum of his impressions about his visit to the man whose substance he had now inherited, subject to the charge of five hundred pounds a year to the Reverend Owen Barton. He was astonished to find how vivid and how vaguely disquieting were these memories, which now for four years had been buried in his mind. As he sank into sounder sleep, they faded again, and he thought little more of them in the morning. He went to see Mr. Angus as soon as he got to London. Certain securities would have to be sold in order to pay death duties, but the administration of the estate was a simple matter. Francis wanted to know more about his benefactor, but Mr. Angus could tell him very little. Horace Elton had, for some years, lived an extremely sequestered life down at Wedderburn, and his only intimate associate was his secretary, this Mr. Owen Barton. "'Beyond him there were two ladies who used often to stay with him for long periods. "'Their names?' and he paused, searching his memory. "'Mrs. Isabel Ray and her daughter Judith,' suggested Francis. "'Exactly. They were often there, and not infrequently a number of people used to arrive rather late in the evening, eleven o'clock or even later, stay for an hour or two, and then be off again. "'A little mysterious.' Only a week or so before Mr. Elton died there had been quite a congregation of them, fifteen or twenty, I believe. Francis was silent for a moment. It was as if pieces of a jigsaw puzzle were calling for their due location, but the shapes were too fantastic. And about my uncle's illness and death, he said, the cremation of his body was on the same day as that on which he died, at least so I understood from your telegram. "'Yes, that was so,' said Mr. Angus. "'But why? I should instantly have come back to England in order to be present. Was it not unusual?' "'Yes, Mr. Elton, it was unusual, but there were reasons for it.' "'I should like to hear them,' he said. "'I was his heir, and it would have been only proper that I should have been there. Why?' Angus hesitated a moment. "'That is a reasonable question.' he said, and I feel bound to answer it. I must begin a little way back. Your uncle was in excellent physical health, apparently, till about a week before his death, very stout, but very alert and active. Then the trouble began. It took the form at first of some grievous mental and spiritual disturbance. He thought for some reason that he was going to die very soon, and the idea of death produced in him an abnormal panic terror." He telegraphed for me, for he wanted to make some alteration in his will. I was away and could not get down till the next day, and by the time I arrived he was too desperately ill to give any sort of coherent instructions. But his intention, I think, was to cut Mr. Owen Barton out of it. Again the lawyer paused. I found, he said, that on the morning of the day I got down to Wedderburn he had sent for the parson of his parish and had made a confession to him.' What that was, I have not, of course, the slightest idea. Till then he had been in this panic fear of death, but was physically himself. Immediately afterwards some very horrible disease invaded him. Just that, invasion. The doctors who were summoned from London and Bournemouth had no idea what it was. Some unknown microbe, they supposed, which made the most swift and frightful havoc of skin and tissue and bone." "'It was like some putrefying internal corruption. "'It was as if he was dead already. Uh, "'Really, I don't know what good it will do to tell you this.' "'I want to know,' said Francis. "'Well, this corruption. "'Living organisms came out as from a dead body. "'His nurses used to be sick, "'and the room was always swarming with flies, "'great fat flies crawling over the walls and the bed.' He was quite conscious, and there persisted this frantic terror of death, when you would have thought that a man's soul would have been only too thankful to be quit of such a habitation. "'And was Mr. Owen Barton with him?' asked Francis. "'From the moment that Mr. Elton made his confession he refused to see him. Once he came into the room, and there was a shocking scene. The dying man screamed and yelled with terror. Nor would he see the two ladies we have mentioned.' Why they continued to stop in the house I can't imagine. Then on the last morning of his life, he could not speak now, he traced a word or two on a piece of paper, and it seemed that he wanted to receive the Holy Communion, so the parson was sent for. The old lawyer paused again. Francis saw that his hand was shaking. Then very dreadful things happened, he said. I was in the room, for he signed to me to be near him, and I saw them with my own eyes. The parson had poured the wine into the chalice, and had put the bread on the pattern, and was about to consecrate the elements, when a cloud of those flies of which I have told you came about him. They filled the chalice like a swarm of bees, they settled in their unclean thousands on the pattern, and in a couple of minutes the chalice was dry and empty, and they had devoured the bread. "'Then, like drilled hosts, you may say, "'they swarmed onto your uncle's face "'so that you could see nothing of it. "'He choked and he gasped. "'There was one writhing convulsion, "'and thank God it was all over. "'And then?' asked Francis. "'There were no flies. "'Nothing. "'But it was necessary to have the body cremated at once "'and the bedding with it. "'Very shocking indeed.' "'I would not have told you if you had not pressed me.' "'And the ashes?' asked he. "'You will see that there is a clause in his will directing that his remains should be buried at the foot of the Judas tree beside the swimming-pool in the garden at Wedderburn.' "'That was done.' Francis was a very unimaginative young man, free from superstitious twitterings and unprofitable speculations— and this story, suggestive though it was of ghastly subcurrents, did not take hold of his mind at all or lead to the fashioning of uneasy fancies. It was all very horrible, but it was over. He went down to Wedderburn for Easter with a widowed sister of his and her small boy, aged eleven, and they all fairly fell in love with the place. It was soon settled that Sybil Marsham should let her house in London for the summer months and establish herself here— Dickie, who was a delicate boy, rather queer and elfin, would thus have the benefit of country air, and Francis the benefit of having the place run by his sister and occupied and in commission whenever he was able to get away from his work. The house was of brick and timber, with accommodation for half a dozen folk, and stood on high ground above the little town. Francis made a tour of it as soon as he arrived, rather astonished to find how the sight of it rubbed up to clearness in the minutest details his memory of it. There was the sitting-room with its tall bookcases and its deep window-seats overlooking the garden, where he had sat unobserved when his uncle and Mrs. Ray came in talking together. Above was his uncle's panelled bedroom, which he proposed to occupy himself, with the big wardrobe containing vestments. He opened it. They were under their covering sheets of tissue paper, shimmering with scarlet and gold and finest lawn foamed with Irish lace. A faint smell of incense hung about them. Next to that was his uncle's sitting-room, and beyond that the room which he had slept in before and was now appropriated to Dickie. These rooms lay on the front of the house, looking westwards over the garden, and he went out to renew acquaintance with it. Flower-beds gay with spring blossoms ran below the windows, then came the lawn, and beyond the belt of trees that enclosed the swimming-pool. He passed along the path that threaded its way between tapestries of primrose and anemone, and came out into the clearing that surrounded the water. The bathing-shed stood at the deep end of it by the sluice that splashed riotously into the channel below, for the stream that supplied the pool was running full with the rains of March. In front of the copse on the far side stood a Judas-tree decked gloriously with flowers, and the reflection of it was cast waveringly on the rippled surface of the water. Somewhere below those red-blossoming boughs there was buried a casket of ashes— he strolled round the pool, it was quite sheltered here from the April breeze, and bees were busy in the red blossoms, bees and large fat flies, a quantity of them. He and Sybil were sitting in the drawing-room with the deep window-seats as dusk began to fall. A servant came in to say that Mr. Owen Barton had called. Certainly they were at home, and he entered and was introduced to Sybil. "'You will hardly remember me, Mr. Elton,' he said, "'but I was here when you paid a visit to your uncle, four years ago it must have been.' "'But I remember you perfectly,' he said. "'We bathed together, we played tennis. "'You were very kind to a shy boy. "'And are you living here still?' "'Yes, I took a house in Wedderburn after your uncle's death. "'I spent six very happy years with him as his secretary, "'and I got much attached to the country.' My house stands just outside your garden palings opposite the latched gate leading into the wood round the pool. The door opened and Dickie came in. He caught sight of the stranger and stopped. "'Say, how do you do to Mr. Barton, Dickie?' said his mother. Dicky performed this duty with due politeness and stood regarding him. He was a shy boy, usually, but after this inspection he advanced close to him and laid his hands on his knees. "'I like you.' he said confidently, and leant up against him. ''Don't bother, Mr. Barton, Dickie,'' she said rather sharply. ''But he's doing nothing of the kind,'' said Barton, and drew the boy towards him so that he stood clipped between his knees. Sybil got up. ''Come, Dick,'' she said. ''We'll have a walk round the garden before it gets dark.'' ''Is he coming too?'' asked the boy. ''No, he's going to stop and talk to Uncle Francis.'' When the two men were alone, Barton said a word or two about Horace Elton, who had always been so generous a friend to him. The end, mercifully short, had been terrible, and terrible to him personally had been the dying man's refusal to see him during the last two days of his life. "'His mind, I think, must have been affected,' he said, "'by his awful sufferings. It happens like that sometimes. People turn against those with whom they have been most intimate.' I have often mourned over that, and deeply regretted it. And I owe you certain words of explanation, Mr. Elton. Uh, No doubt you were puzzled to find in your uncle's will that I was entitled the Reverend. It is quite true, though I do not call myself so. Certain spiritual doubts and difficulties caused me to give up my orders, but your uncle always held that if a man is once a priest he is always a priest. He was very strong about that, and no doubt he was right.' "'I didn't know my uncle took any interest in ecclesiastical affairs,' said Francis. "'Ah, I had forgotten about his vestments. Perhaps that was only an artistic taste. Uh, By no means he regarded them as sacred things, consecrated to holy uses. And may I ask you what happened to his remains? I remember he once expressed a wish to be buried by the swimming-pool.' "'His body was cremated,' said Francis, "'and the ashes were buried there.' Barton stayed but little longer, and Sybil on her return was frankly relieved to find he had gone. Simply, she didn't like him. There was something queer, something sinister about him. Francis laughed at her. Quite a good fellow, he thought. Dreams, of course, are a mere hash-up of recent mental images and associations, and a very vivid dream that came to Francis that night could easily have arisen from such topics. He thought he was swimming in the bathing-pool with Owen Barton, and that his uncle, stout and florid, was standing underneath the Judas-tree, watching them. That seemed quite natural, as is the way of dreams, merely he was not dead at all. When they came out of the water he looked for his clothes, but found that there was laid out for him a scarlet cassock and a white lace-trimmed cotter. This again was quite natural. "'So, too, was the fact that Barton put on a gold cope. "'His uncle, very merry and licking his lips, joined them, "'and each of them took an arm of his, "'and they walked back to the house together, singing a hymn. "'As they went, the daylight died, "'and by the time they crossed the lawn it was black night, "'and the windows of the house were lit. "'They walked upstairs, still singing, "'into his uncle's bedroom, which was now his own.' There was an open door which he had never noticed before opposite his bed, and there came a very bright light from it. Then the sense of nightmare began, for his two companions, gripping him tightly, pulled him along towards it, and he struggled with them, knowing there was something terrible within. But step by step they dragged him, violently resisting, and now out of the door there came a swarm of large, fat flies that buzzed and settled on him. "'Thicker and thicker they streamed out, "'covering his face and crawling into his eyes "'and entering his mouth as he panted for breath. "'The horror grew to breaking "'and he woke, sweating with a hammering heart. "'He switched on the light, "'and there was the quiet room "'and the dawn beginning to be luminous outside "'and the birds just tuning up. "'Francis's few days of holiday passed quickly.' He went down to the village to see Barton's house, and found it a most pleasant little dwelling, and its owner an exceedingly pleasant fellow. Barton dined with them one evening, and Sybil went so far as to admit that her first judgment of him was hasty. He was charming with Dickie, too, and that disposed her in his favour, and the boy adored him. Soon it was necessary to find some tutor for him, and Barton readily agreed to undertake his education, and every morning Dicky trotted across the garden and through the wood where the swimming-pool lay to Barton's house. His ill health had made him rather backward in his studies, but he was now eager to learn and to please his instructor, and he got on quickly. It was now that I first met Francis, and during the next few months in London we became close friends. He told me that he had lately inherited this place at Wedderburn from his uncle— but for the present I knew no more than that of the previous history which I have just recorded. Sometime during July he told me he was intending to spend the month of August there. His sister, who kept house for him, and her small boy, would be away for the first week or two, for she had taken him off to the seaside. Would I, then, come and share his solitude, and get on there uninterrupted with some work I had on hand?' That seemed a very attractive plan, and we motored down together one very hot afternoon early in August that promised thunder. Owen Barton, he told me, who had been his uncle's secretary, was coming to dine with us that night. It wanted an hour or so yet to dinner-time when we arrived, and Francis directed me, if I cared for a dip, to the bathing-pool among the trees beyond the lawn. He had various household businesses to look into himself, so I went off alone, "'It was an enchanting place, the water still and very clear, mirroring the sky and the full-foliaged trees, and I stripped and plunged in. "'I lay and floated in the cool water, I swam and dived again, and then I saw, walking close to the far bank of the pool, a man of something more than middle age and extremely stout.' He was in dress-clothes, dinner-jacket, and black tie, and instantly it struck me that this must be Mr. Barton coming up from the village to dine with us. It must therefore be later than I thought, and I swam back to the shed where my clothes were. As I climbed out of the water I glanced round. There was no one there. It was a slight shock, but very slight. It was odd that he should have come so unexpectedly out of the wood and disappeared again so suddenly— but it did not concern me much. I hurried home, changed quickly, and came down, expecting to find Francis and his guest in the drawing-room, but I need not have been in such haste, for now my watch told me that there was still a quarter of an hour before dinner-time. As for the others, I supposed that Mr. Barton was upstairs with Francis in his sitting-room, so I picked up a chance book to beguile the time, and read for a while, but the room grew rather dark and rising to switch on the electric light I saw, standing outside the French window into the garden, the figure of a man, outlined against the last of a stormy sunset, looking into the room. There was no doubt whatever in my mind that he was the same person as I had seen when I was bathing, and the switching on of the light made this clear, for it shone full on his face. No doubt then Mr. Barton, finding he was too early, was strolling about the garden till the dinner hour. But now I did not look forward at all to this evening. I had had a good look at him, and there was something horrible about him. Was he human? Was he earthly at all? Then he quietly moved away, and immediately afterwards there came a knock at the front door just outside the room, and I heard Francis coming downstairs. He went to the door himself, there was a word of greeting, and he came into the room accompanied by a tall, slim fellow whom he introduced to me. We had a very pleasant evening. Barton talked fluently and agreeably, and more than once he spoke of his friend and pupil Dickie. About eleven he rose to go, and Francis suggested to him that he should walk back across the garden, which gave him a shortcut to his house. The threatening storm still held off, but it was very dark overhead as we stood together outside the French window. Barton was soon swallowed up in the blackness, Then there came a bright flash of lightning, and in that moment of illumination I saw that there was standing in the middle of the lawn, as if waiting for him, the figure I had seen twice already. Who is that? was on the tip of my tongue, but instantly I perceived that Francis had seen nothing of it, and so I was silent, for I knew now what I had already half-guessed, that this was no living man of flesh and blood whom I had seen. A few heavy drops of rain plopped on the flagged walk, and, as we moved indoors, Francis called out, "'Good night, Barton,' and the cheery voice answered. Before long we went up to bed, and he took me into his room as we passed a big panelled chamber with a great wardrobe by the bed. Close to it hung an oil portrait of Kit-Kat's size. "'I'll show you what's in that wardrobe tomorrow," he said. "'Rather wonderful things. Uh, That's a picture of my uncle.' I had seen that face before this evening. For the next two or three days I had no further glimpse of that dreadful visitant, but never for a moment was I at ease, for I was aware that he was about. What instinct or what sense perceived that I have no idea, perhaps it was merely the dread I had of seeing him again that gave rise to the conviction. I thought of telling Francis that I must get back to London— What prevented me from doing so was the desire to know more, and that made me fight this cold fear. Then, very soon, I perceived that Francis was no more at ease than I was. Sometimes, as we sat together in the evening, he was oddly alert. He would pause in the middle of a sentence as if some sound had attracted his attention, or he would look up from our game of baisique and focus his eyes for a second on some corner of the room, or, more often, on the dark oblong of the open French window. Had he, I wondered, been seeing something invisible to me, and, like myself, feared to speak of it? These impressions were momentary and infrequent, but they kept alive in me the feeling that there was something astir, and that something, coming out of the dark and the unknown, was growing in force. It had come into the house and was present everywhere and then one awoke again to a morning of heavenly brightness and sunshine, and surely one was disquieting oneself in vain. I had been there about a week when something occurred which precipitated what followed. I slept in the room which Dickie usually occupied, and awoke one night feeling uncomfortably hot. I tugged at a blanket to remove it, but it was tucked very tightly in between the mattresses on the side of the bed next to the wall." Eventually I got it free, and as I did so I heard something drop with a flutter onto the floor. In the morning I remembered that, and found underneath the bed a little paper notebook. I opened it idly enough, and within were a dozen pages written over in a round, childish handwriting, and these words struck my eye. Thursday, July eleventh. I saw great-uncle Horace again this morning in the wood. He told me something about myself which I didn't understand— but he said I should like it when I got older. I mustn't tell anybody that he's here, nor what he told me, except Mr. Barton. I did not care one jot whether I was reading a boy's private diary. That was no longer a consideration worth thinking about. I turned over the page and found another entry. Sunday, July twenty-first, I saw Uncle Horace again, I said I had told Mr. Barton what he had told me, and Mr. Barton had told me some more things, and that he was pleased, and said I was getting on, and that he would take me to prayer some day soon. I cannot describe the thrill of horror that these entries woke in me. They made the apparition which I had seen infinitely more real, and more sinister. It was a spirit corrupt and malign and intent on corruption that haunted the place. But what was I to do? How could I, without any lead from Francis, tell him that the spirit of his uncle, of whom at present I knew nothing, had been seen not by me only, but by his nephew, and that he was at work on the boy's mind? Then there was the mention of Barton. Certainly that could not be left as it was. He was collaborating in that damnable task. A cult of corruption, or was I being too fantastic, began to outline itself. Then, What did that sentence about taking him to prayers mean? But Dickie was away, thank goodness, for the present, and there was time to think it over. As for that pitiful little notebook, I put it into a locked dispatch case. The day, as far as outward and visible signs were concerned, passed pleasantly. For me there was a morning's work, and for both of us an afternoon on the golf-links. But below there was something heavy— my knowledge of that diary kept intervening with mental telephone calls, asking, "'What are you going to do?' Francis, on his side, was troubled. There were subcurrents, and I did not know what they were. Silences fell, not the natural, unobserved silences between those who are intimate, which are only a symbol of their intimacy, but the silences between those who have something on their minds of which they fear to speak. These had got more stringent all day. There was a growing tenseness— All common topics were banal, for they only cloaked a certain topic. We sat out on the lawn before dinner on that sultry evening, and breaking one of those silent intervals, he pointed at the front of the house. "'There's an odd thing,' he said. "'Look. There are three rooms, aren't there, on the ground floor—dining-room, drawing-room, and the little study where you write. Now look above. There are three rooms there—your bedroom, my bedroom, and my sitting-room.' I've measured them. There are twelve feet missing. Looks as if there was a sealed up room somewhere. Here, at any rate, was something to talk about. Exciting, I said. Mayn't we explore? We will. We'll explore as soon as we've dined. Uh, then there's another thing quite off the point. Uh, you remember those vestments I showed you the other day? I opened the wardrobe where they are kept an hour ago, and a lot of big fat flies came buzzing out. A row like a dozen aeroplanes overhead, remote but loud, if you know what I mean. And then there weren't any. Somehow I felt that what we had been silent about was coming out into the open. It might be ill to look upon. He jumped up from his chair. "'Let's have done with these silences,' he cried. "'He's here. My uncle, I mean. I haven't told you yet, but he died in a swarm of flies.' He asked for the sacrament, but before the wine was consecrated the chalice was choked with them. And I know he's here. It sounds damned rot, but he is. I know that too, I said. I've seen him. Why didn't you tell me? Because I thought you would laugh at me. I should have a few days ago, said he, but I don't now. Go on. The first evening I was here I saw him at the bathing pool— "'That same night when we were seeing Owen Barton off, "'a flash of lightning came, "'and he was there again, standing on the lawn. "'But how did you know it was he?' asked Francis. "'I knew it when you showed me the portrait of him in your bedroom that same night. "'Have you seen him?' "'No, but he's here. "'Anything more?' "'This was the opportunity not only natural, but inevitable. "'Yes, much more,' I said.' Dicky has seen him too. "'That child? Impossible!' "'The door out of the drawing-room opened, "'and Frances's parlour-maid came out with the sherry on a tray. "'She put the decanter and glasses down on the wicker table between us, "'and I asked her to bring out the dispatch-case from my room. "'I took the paper notebook out of it. "'This slipped out from between my mattresses last night. "'It's Dickie's diary. Listen.' "'And I read him the first extract.' Francis gave one of those swift, disconcerting glances over his shoulder. "'But we're dreaming,' he said. "'It's a nightmare. God, there's something awful here. And what about Dicky not telling anybody except Barton what he told him? Anything more?' "'Yes. Sunday, July 21st, I saw Uncle Horace again. I said I had told Mr. Barton what he told me, and Mr. Barton told me some more things, and that he was pleased, and said I was getting on,' and that he would take me to prayers some day soon. I don't know what that means. Francis sprang out of his chair. What? he cried. Take him to prayers? Wait a minute. Let me remember about my first visit here. I was a boy of nineteen, and frightfully, absurdly innocent for my age. A woman staying here gave me a book to read called La Bas. I I didn't get far in it then, but I know what it's about now. Black Mass, said I, "'Satan-worshippers?' "'Yes. And "'Then one day my uncle dressed me up in a scarlet cassock, "'and Barton came in and put on a cope "'and said something about my being a server. "'He used to be a priest, did you know that? "'And one night I awoke and heard the sound of chanting "'and a bell rang. "'By the way, Barton's coming to dine tomorrow. "'What are you going to do?' "'About him, I can't tell yet, "'but we've got something to do tonight. Horrors have happened here in this house. There must be some room where they held their mass, a chapel. Why, there's that missing space I spoke of just now. After dinner we set to work. Somewhere on the first floor, on the garden front of the house, there was this space unaccounted for by the dimensions of the rooms there. We turned on the electric light in all of them, and then going out into the garden we saw that the windows in Francis's bedroom and in his sitting-room next door were far more widely spaced than they should have been. Somewhere then, between them, lay the area to which there was no apparent access, and we went upstairs. The wall of his sitting-room seemed solid. It was of brick and timber, and large beams ran through it at narrow intervals, but the wall of his bedroom was panelled, and when we tapped on it no sound came through into the other room beyond. We began to examine it. The servants had gone to bed, and the house was silent, but as we moved about from garden to house and from one room to another there was some presence watching and following us. We had shut the door into his bedroom from the passage, but now as we peered and felt about the panelling the door swung open and closed again, and something entered brushing my shoulder as it passed. "'What's that?' I said. "'Someone came in.' "'Never mind that,' he said. "'Look what I've found.' In the border of one of the panels was a black stud like an ebony bell-push. He pressed it and pulled, and a section of the panelling slid sideways, disclosing a red curtain cloaking a doorway. He drew it aside with a clash of metal rings. It was dark within, and out of the darkness came a smell of stale incense.' I felt with my hand along the frame of the doorway and found a switch, and the blackness was flooded with a dazzling light. Within was a chapel. There was no window, and at the west end of it, not the east, there stood an altar. Above it was a picture, evidently of some early Italian school. It was on the lines of the Fra Angelico picture of the Annunciation, The virgin sat in an open loggia, and on the flowery space outside the angel made his salutation. His spreading wings were the wings of a bat, and his black head and neck were those of a raven. He had his left hand, not his right, raised in blessing. The virgin's robe of thinnest red muslin was trimmed with revolting symbols, and her face was that of a panting dog with tongue protruding.' There were two niches at the east end in which were marble statues of naked men with the inscriptions St. Judas and St. Gilles de Rey. One was picking up pieces of silver that lay at his feet, the other looked down leering and laughing at the prone figure of a mutilated boy. The place was lit by a chandelier from the ceiling. This was of the shape of a crown of thorns and electric bulbs nestled among the woven silver twigs. A bell hung from the roof close beside the altar. For the moment, as I looked on these obscene blasphemies, I felt that they were merely grotesque and no more to be regarded seriously than the dirty inscriptions written upon empty wall-spaces in the street. That indifference swiftly passed, and a horrified consciousness of the devotion of those who had fashioned and assembled these decorations took its place. "'Skilled painters and artificers had wrought them, "'and they were here for the service of all that is evil. "'That spirit of adoration lived in them, dynamic and active, "'and the place was throbbing with the exultant joy "'of those who had worshipped here.' "'And look here!' cried Francis. "'He pointed to a little table standing against the wall "'just outside the altar rails. "'There were photographs on it, "'one of a boy standing on the headerboard at the bathing-pool, "'about to plunge.' That's me, he said. Barton took it. And what's written underneath it? Ora pro Francisco Elton. And that's Mrs. Ray, and that's my uncle, and that's Barton in a cope. Pray for him too, please. But it's childish. He suddenly burst into a shout of laughter. The roof of the chapel was vaulted, and the echo that came from it was loud and surprising. The place rang with it. His laughter ceased but not so the echo. There was someone else laughing. But where? Who? Except for us the chapel was empty of all visible presences. On and on the laughter went, and we stared at each other with panic stirring. The brilliant light from the chandelier began to fade, dusk gathered, and in the dusk there was brewing some hellish and deadly force and through the dimness I saw, hanging in the air and oscillating slightly, as if in a draught, the laughing face of Horace Elton. (laughs) Francis saw it too. "'Fight it! Withstand it!' he cried as he pointed to it. "'Desecrate all that it holds sanctified! God, do you smell the incense and the corruption!' We tore the photographs, we smashed the table on which they stood, we plucked the frontal from the altar and spat on the accursed table, we tugged at it till it toppled over and the marble slab split in half, we hauled from the niches the two statues that stood there, and crash they went onto the paved floor. Then, appalled at the riot of our iconoclasm, we paused. The laughter had ceased, and no oscillating face dangled in the dimness. Then we left the chapel and pulled across the doorway the panel that closed it. Francis came to sleep in my room, and we talked long, laying our plans for next day. We had forgotten the picture over the altar in our destruction, but now it worked in with what we proposed to do. Then we slept, and the night passed without disturbance. At the least we had broken up the apparatus that was hallowed to unhallowed uses, and that was something— but there was grim work ahead yet, and the issue was unconjecturable. Barton came to dine that next evening, and there hung on the wall opposite his place the picture from the chapel upstairs. He did not notice it at first, for the room was rather dark, but not dark enough yet to need artificial light. He was gay and lively as usual, spoke amusingly and wittily, and asked when his friend Dicky was to return. Towards the end of dinner the lights were switched on, and then he saw the picture. I was watching him, and the sweat started out on his face that had grown clay-coloured in a moment. Then he pulled himself together. "'That's a strange picture,' he said. "'Was it here before?' "'Surely not.' "'No, it was in a room upstairs,' said Francis. "'About Dickie. I don't know for certain when he'll come back. "'We have found his diary.' and presently we must speak about that. Dickie's diary, indeed,' said Barton, and he moistened his lips with his tongue. I think he guessed then that there was something desperate ahead, and I pictured a man condemned to be hanged waiting in his cell with his warders for the imminent hour, as Barton waited then. He sat with an elbow on the table and his hand propping his forehead. Immediately almost the servant brought in our coffee and left us.' Dicky's diary, said Francis quietly. Your name figures in it. Also my uncle's. Dickie saw him more than once, but of course you know that. Barton drank off his glass of brandy. Are you telling me a ghost story, he said. Pray go on. Yes, it's partly a ghost story, but not entirely. My uncle... His ghost, if you like, told him certain stories, and said he must keep them secret except from you. And you told him more, and you said he should come to prayers with you some day soon. Where was that to be? In the room just above us. The brandy had given the condemned man a momentary courage. "'A pack of lies, Mr. Elton,' he said. "'That boy has got a corrupt mind. He told me things that no boy of his age should know.' He giggled and laughed at them. Perhaps I ought to have told his mother. "'It's too late to think of that now,' said Francis. "'The diary I spoke of will be in the hands of the police at ten o'clock tomorrow morning. They will also inspect the room upstairs, where you have been in the habit of celebrating the Black Mass.' Barton leant forward towards him. "'No, no!' he cried. "'Don't do that. I beg and implore you. I will confess the truth to you. I will conceal nothing.' My life has been a blasphemy, but I'm sorry, I repent, I abjure all those abominations from henceforth, I renounce them all in the name of Almighty God. Too late, said Francis, and then the horror that haunts me still began to manifest itself. The wretched man threw himself back in his chair, and there dropped from his forehead onto his white shirt-front a long grey worm that lay and wriggled there. At that moment there came from overhead the sound of a bell, and he sprang to his feet. ''No!'' he cried again. ''I retract all I said. I abjure nothing, and my lord is waiting for me in the sanctuary. I must be quick and make my humble confession to him.'' With the movement of a slinking animal he slid from the room, and we heard his steps going swiftly upstairs. ''Did you see?'' I whispered. ''And what's to be done? Is the man sane?'' ''It's beyond us now,'' said Francis. There was a thump on the ceiling overhead as if someone had fallen, and without a word we ran upstairs into Francis's bedroom. The door of the wardrobe where the vestments were kept was open, some lay on the floor. The panel was open too, but within it was dark. In terror at what might meet our eyes, I felt for the switch and turned the light on. The bell which had sounded a few minutes ago was still swinging gently, though speaking no more. Barton, clad in the gold-embroidered cope, lay in front of the overturned altar with his face twitching. Then that ceased, the rattle of death creaked in his throat, and his mouth fell open. Great flies, swarms of them, coming from nowhere, settled on it.